I threw out Husker Du. And we laughed, thought it was funny. And then later on, it's like I threw this out in earnest and said, why don't we call the band Husker Du? It means, do you remember? And I'm like, you know, as in like, do you remember when rock and roll was good? I don't want to overuse the word posers, but there was no working class punk until Husker Du came along. I mean, we were very aware of what we needed to do to you know, start becoming a new band in the upper Midwest that could, you know, hopefully get to Chicago someday. Welcome to Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In the first episode, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, and Greg Norton met in St. Paul, Minnesota. In this episode, they decide to form a band, pick a name, and start recording. Grant Hart explains. I mean, Bob and I had been jamming in his dorm room. I mean, we weren't bringing drums up there or anything, but uh, with those small beginnings, we you know, got the big push when these gigs came along and continued up the slope. The three of them were becoming closer personally, as well as musically, as Greg told Brian Oak. The Ramones are coming through town opening for Foreigner. They're playing at the Civic Center. We're like, well, we got to go. We got to go see this. And so we're like, we buy tickets. And Grant's like, hey, my buddy Bob that I met at Cheapo, he's going to come with us. So Grant's the only one of the three of us that had a car. So Grant picks up Bob, brings him over to my house. We're hanging out at my house getting ready to go to the concert, and it was right before Thanksgiving, and my mom says, oh, so Bob, where are you from? Upstate New York, um, uh, Malone, New York. Oh, are you going home for for Thanksgiving? No, I think I'm going to stay here. Oh, my gosh, do you have any place to go for Thanksgiving? And Bob's like, well, no, I'm just going to hang out at the dorm. Well, you, you come here, and you have Thanksgiving at our house. And I'm thinking like, Mom, I just met this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so... And sure enough, Bob came to my house and had Thanksgiving dinner, and and, uh, the three of us are now kind of friends. Fast forward to January of 79, Grant and myself, my friend Bill, who was the guy who got Grant the job at Melody Lane, and Charlie Pine, who was the manager at Cheapo, and my girlfriend at the time, we were at a 3-2 bar called Ron's Randolph Inn. And Charlie comes back to the table with a pitcher three two beer and sits down and says, Grant, we have to start a band because I just got us a gig. Grant's like, okay, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I noticed that they had bands play here. So I asked the bartender about it. And she said, why, do you have a band? He said, yeah, we're called Buddy and the Returnables. And she said, all right, you guys are playing March 30th and 31st. So we had two months to put a band together and learn three sets of material. So immediately Bob comes to mind. Brant's like, I know this guy, Bob. He's got a flying B guitar. You know, he'd be he'd be perfect. So it was the three of us, Charlie Pine on keyboards. We put together three sets. We played two nights, all covers. Everything from um, Non-Alignment Pack by Paraubu, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Uh, we did a Ramones surf medley of uh, California Sun and Rockaway Beach. Uh, We did Sea Cruise, Sweet Jane. So after the first night, the three of us get to Ron's Randolph Inn on Saturday, and and Charlie's not there yet. So we're we're sitting around, and and we're like, 
you know, this is a lot of fun playing together. I think I think we should keep doing this, but I'm not so sure if Charlie really fits. The three of us all all had that same consensus. So it's like, you know what, let's let's not tell Charlie, but let's keep getting together and see what happens. Buddy and the Returnables were a success, as Grant Hart told Andreas Swenson in August 2017. So we played this two or three shows that went all right. I mean, they paid us after the end of the weekend. And we packed the place with our friends, so the owners were more than happy to you know, accept the result. So we were a band. Soon, that band had a place to rehearse, as Greg Norton explains. So at the time, I was working now at Northern Lights on University Avenue, and I'd been there for a couple of months. And John Carnahan, the owner, I'd approached him and said, like, hey, we're starting a band. We need a place to practice. And he's like, tell you what, clean out all of the uh, construction, like, crap from the build-out that's in the basement. Make yourself a space, and you guys can rehearse here. So we're like, great. So we hauled out all of this, you know, cleaned out the basement for them, and we had the perfect spot to rehearse. The store closed at 9 o'clock. There were businesses on both sides. The Montgomery Wards was across the street. There was, you know, no neighbors on the backside to bother. We rehearsed every single night starting at 9 o'clock, and we'd go until midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And we just started writing stuff. And after a couple of weeks, all of a sudden, Charlie Pine calls back up and says, hey, we got another gig. And we're like, ah, okay, all right. So this is uh, playing at Springfest at McAllister. And so we get to Springfest. We plow through a, you know, a set of our great covers that we, that we all <laughs> love and the crowd's loving it. It's a good crowd. And uh, we get done and they're like, yeah, you guys have like 15 minutes left. And so Bob, Grant, and myself jump back up on stage and we're like, we're going to play our originals. And we start playing and Charlie's like looking at us going like, what are you guys doing? It's like, what song is this? What key is it in? He's like trying to figure it out on the keyboards. And while we're playing and we're just blasting through Sex Dolls and MTC and, and probably Uncle Ron, a friend of Grant's who was in the front row reaches up and grabs the cord out of the back of the Farfisa and yanks it out. So all of a sudden, no more keyboards. And uh, so, so that's how the, the legend goes as uh, Charlie Pine getting fired on stage by Husker Du. Um, you know, Charlie went on to do do some good things in the music biz himself. You know, he was really involved with the Jayhawks, and he's still around. Charlie's a great dude. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's part of the lore right there. Humiliation comes to mind, but uh, it was the kind of humiliation that at that age you don't realize how long-lasting the effects may be. That was the end of Buddy and the Returnables. Luckily, Greg had come up with a new name during band practice. One of the first rehearsals we did at Charlie's house, I actually threw out the idea, and and this came from Grant and I hanging out a couple of months prior to this. Grant's making up parody lyrics to the tune of Psycho Killer. Getting around to the chorus, instead of saying, Qu'est-ce que c'est? 
I threw out Husker Du. And we laughed, thought it was funny. And then later on, it's like I, I threw this out in earnest and said, why don't we call the band Husker Du? You know, number one, it's it's foreign. It's, you know, we could use umlauts. Uh, it means, do you remember? And I'm like, you know, as in like, do you remember when rock and roll was good? So we, we decided that's it. That's going to be the name, Husker Du. For the Ron's Randolph End gig, we actually made flyers that said, first time in the U.S., Husker Du. <laughs> The trio faced a small challenge, though. More after this short break. Husker Du was a St. Paul band, but the punk scene was largely based in Minneapolis. Grant explains to The Currents' Andrea Swenson. The punk scene at that time was limited to what Minneapolis could spit out. Unfortunately, it was affluent people from Hopkins, Edina, the privileged of Minneapolis. They were the ones parading as punks. There was no working-class punks at all. And when, uh, when we first came on the scene, people thought that we were like the Hell's Angels or something because we defied their definition. I don't want to overuse the word posers, but yeah, there was there was no working class punk until Husker Du came along. Do you think that's a product of the background that you had and coming from St. Paul and kind of being the underdogs in that way? Perhaps. I think also the uh, fact that the location was represented, you know, instead of just, you know, these western suburbs producing the punks. All of a sudden, it was the McAllister Groveland contingent. You know, we didn't scare anybody, but people were, like, a bit about our reality. (laughs) From that point on, it was uh, desired to uh, play the Longhorn because the Longhorn was the punk rock club. That was the badge of honor. You weren't a punk rocker in this town unless you played the Longhorn. And it was also us bringing it to the people, the people not being our people, but being the Minneapolis punk audience, whether it was our friends. And, you know, when when we would play a show, we had dedicated people that would show up and uh, they didn't care what somebody from Hopkins thought or whatever. The story everybody knows about CBGB and how that transformed into the center of the New York punk universe. Uh, in a way, the Longhorn was exactly that for Minneapolis and, and St. Paul. There were so many cool shows that went down. You know, Elvis Costello played there. The Stranglers played there. Blondie played there. Talking Heads played there. The Buzzcocks played there. You know, the first time Paraubu came through town, they played there. It was just so many shows. The Police played there, right? You know, so we're writing all these tunes, and summer's coming up, and Bob's like, you know, if we don't have any gigs, I think I'm going to go home to Malone for the summer. Grant and I are like, oh, you can't go home. Maybe we're like writing all these tunes. He's like, well, but we don't have any shows. So the next day, Grant's like, I got us a, an audition at the Longhorn, but we have to go right now. 
Grant knew Hartley Frank, the club's booker, but instead of booking an audition, Grant decided to sneak up on the club's patrons. I told the band that we had an audition at 2 o'clock Thursday because this friend said that he could make it happen, you know, using the power of romance. We're playing maybe 1.30 in the afternoon, but it's in the middle of lunch rush and buffet, and we start playing, and Hartley comes out, and he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's like, well, we're playing our audition. We, we want to play here. We decided to just melt their faces. And all of a sudden, Hartley Frank comes out of the back office and says, stop, 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 stop. What are you guys doing? It's like, hey, we want a gig. All right, you can play here. Just stop and get the hell out. You can play next Friday. You'll be the first of four bands. Pay you 25 bucks. He fell for our trick. <laughs> Everybody fell for our trick. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first fans Huskadu made at the Longhorn was Terry Katzman, a record store clerk and occasional DJ at the club. Terry spoke to writer Michelangelo Matos. From the first day that I met them, Grant was unloading equipment from the van at the Longhorn, and that's where I first met him. My first experience of seeing the band was later on that early evening. During that time, I was working at Orfolk Jokopis, so I worked there from... 76 until 85, nine years. And uh, that was being in the right place at the right time, obviously. So I started in the fall of 76, prime time for the punk rock stuff and being involved in all that, 76, 77, 78, basically. So, and then on into 79 and 80 with the Hooskers. I'd already gone through a first infatuation with the Suicide Commandos down there, so the, the Hooskers were sort of my next, uh, the next level up for me, the next level over, I guess you'd say. They were a little bit disarming because they didn't really sound or look like any of, of the other bands of the time. Plus, you have to keep in mind, they were more of a pop band then because before everything speeded up, they were just kind of a pop band that was... You know, had lots of different influences, the Hollies, uh, you know, all sorts of just regular 60s pop. But no, you could tell right away that they had something special. You could see that they were weaned on pop music, yet it was it had a more aggressive, forceful edge to it even before they sped up. And it, it was that way. There's just not a lot of talking or, or goofing around or cracking up between songs. It was business, you know, business as usual when they got on stage. Unless somebody broke a string or something technical happened, they were there to play. In those days, they didn't really engage the crowd always the way you might think. It was sometimes a little more adversarial, but adversarial and fun, that was just a sign of the times back then. 
the very beginning, we did try to banter with the audience, but we got to a point where it's like, okay, we don't have time to mess around with that. So we would just come out and start playing. We played loud. We played fast. We jumped around, you know, get angry, punk rage, right? And it turned heads. That summer, it wasn't uncommon to grab what was back then called the sweet potato and open it up to the Longhorn ad and see our name listed coming up in next week's shows going like, oh, I guess we're playing. Once Huth Kudu started playing, they brought out a new group of fans and a new kind of dancing. The Suicide Commandos' Chris Osgood explained to Andrea Swenson. Mosh pits didn't exist in the, the Commandos' heyday at the Longhorn. It was people pogoing and sort of jumping up and down in time to the music. And the Huskers and that scene, the mosh pit scene, it was a different kind of energy. It wasn't scary, um, but it was a different, you know, definitely going into turning the corner into the more of the hardcore stuff going on. You know, not that they were exactly that, but um, they were a part of a page turning. That's for sure. And certainly so different from the suburbs who came along kind of right behind us and other bands that were to follow. They weren't scary or intimidating to me, but they were um, frantically energetic. And just the way that um, everybody played. And um, Bob, who to this day, he's like a fierce presence. You know, he, he Bob has a fierceness about him. And Grant had a reckless abandon about him. And... Um, and Greg was, you know, thrashing around with that Gibson bass and, and spinning in circles and stuff. Um, so to see that band play, it was nonstop action on stage. Babes in Toyland drummer Lori Barbero was working at the Longhorn when Husker du started playing there. She spoke to Brian Oak. The Longhorn was right off of Hennepin on Fifth Street. I was a server there, and Husker du started playing, and... I remember seeing them and I was like, I just really, for some reason, just loved three-piece bands. I just thought that that was the cat's meow. And there was a handful of us that were called the Who's Could, quote-unquote, Who's Could Do Veggies. And there was a few of us girls. And then there were the guys that ended up being in uh, man-sized action. When Who's Could Do would play, we were always just kind of in front. And they just called us the veggies because we were just kind of like pre-apocalyptic zombies. You know, just kind of like... <laughs> walked into each other and but and we didn't really dance very fast until they really picked up the beat but we would just be in front and just kind of bounce off of each other and just you know our eyeballs would be rolled back and it's really weird like if there's a video people be like are they okay wait veggies greg norton explains and we start to get a regular core following who were affectionately dubbed as the Husker Veggies. And it uh, doesn't really work out, but we said it stood for very inebriated, generally intoxicated. <laughs> uh, but, but they were loyal, and they were there every show. Here's Lori again. There are many, 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 dozens, hundreds, <laughs> I don't even know, shows where there was just like, you know, 40, 50, 60 of us there, you know, on the 7th Street entry at the Longhorn or Duffy's, you know, but it was a boys club and there were only a handful of people there. It did not make any difference if there were 10 people there or a thousand people there. They still blew the pants off of everybody. I mean, you know, and that's where I kind of learned that, you know, even for us, when we started playing, you know, I really didn't care if there were 50 people. It, it They just always performed. 10,000%. It doesn't make a difference how many people are there. 
For me, probably the most special one is Drug Party. I'm sure that it's probably their first song they ever wrote. It's not their best, but it is the most sentimental and the seed for me. Another early fan was budding photographer Steve Hengsler. He'd met Bob Mould at McAllister. Steve's widow, Annie Hengsler Reinick, spoke with the current's Luke Taylor. He had met this guy that was living across the hallway at Bigelow Hall, and his name was Bob Mould. And he would practice in his dorm room and really enjoyed his music. And then once he created the band Husker Du, Steve went to watch it with a bunch of his friends. Steve was working for the Mac Weekly newspaper of McAllister, and he was a photojournalism minor, and he was writing for the newspaper and taking pictures. And then he took a photojournalism class, and it required that they do a project. And he thought, what a great idea is to take pictures of this Husker Du band as an up-and-coming punk rock band. So he would follow them with his friends to wherever their concerts were at. But Husker Du wasn't your typical looking rock band, as Lori Barbero notes. They just didn't have the band boy image. Where you can look at someone and be like, oh, you know that they're a musician. I mean, when I'm out thrifting or I'm out at a restaurant, I can I can kind of tell who's in the music and who's not just from being in it for so many years. I know it's judging a book by its cover, but there is that look. They just never had that look ever or dressed it. What they had was material in abundance. Here's Greg Norton. Definitely, I think that winter of, of um, you know, 79 into 80, and then, uh, you know, uh, probably that year through 80, leading up to getting into the studio uh, to record the first single, just the, the quality of the material that and, and the amount of stuff that we were recording. And, you know, um, you know I realized also that, that I was playing with two really talented guys. You know, it's Bob his guitar playing just blew me away. It's like, I I was like, holy crap. It's like, I'm playing with the punk Jimi Hendrix, you know? Um, and, and Grant's, um, you know, just the, they, they crafted such great songs. So more and more people start coming out. Terry Kasman becomes our sound guy. So now we've got somebody doing our sound on a regular basis. Here's Terry. Everything they did was, was in fast motion. You know, their creativity, moving on, having a bunch of songs, leaving a few of those behind, moving on to some new songs, just like they did later on in SST, playing stuff from a record that's not really even out yet, when people are expecting stuff 
from the record previous, even before that, for Everything Falls Apart and Land Speed. I mean, they were changing all the time. Obviously, the most dramatic change is when they came back from L.A. to do Land Speed because no one was really prepared. Husker du's audience made them attractive to another new rock club on the corner of 1st Avenue and 7th Street North in downtown Minneapolis. It opened as The Depot in 1970. By 1979, the club changed its name to Sam's, and in early 1980 had begun renovating a smaller side room. The 7th Street entry would showcase the new bands popping up all over the Twin Cities. Steve McClellan, the club's general manager, spoke to the current Andrea Swenson. When the entry opened, they were definitely one of the headliners because they were already a unit and, and, and had an audience. Is it true that they played a soft opening before it was even officially a venue? I guess I let a lot of bands do that. The entry was a game room during Uncle Sam's era, and then it was a storage area, and then we used it as a storage area and a coat check area when we had too many coats for the coat check in front. So it went through many transitional uses. In fact, we knocked down the wall. We didn't know there was going to be a basement there. We just wanted access for an easier loading into the room, and we said, well, wait a minute, there's a door here. Let's go bust down that wall and find the door. And to our surprise... There was a stairway opposite the doorway. This is the doorway that leads on that they still use for load-in at 7th Street. Surprised to find, hey, there's a stairway. It goes down. We didn't know it existed. What and that's when we found the menu and the napkins and the pickles. and The, the official opening date was Kurt and uh, Curtis A. and Wilma and the Wilbers. That one's documented. I was just throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticked, looking for audiences. The Hooskers had found a second home. Here's Grant Hart. We were the first band to ask for a gig at the entry. This one fellow, his name was Danny Flies. He was a near-do-well promoter. So he convinced the people of the committee, which is the organizing body of First Avenue's people, Uh, He convinced them to let him use the place that was going to become the entry, the old cafeteria, uh, donut shop, what have you, at the bus station. And uh, it worked out great. Here's Greg. At this point, we're already headlining weeknights at the Longhorn. 7th Street opens up. Steve McClellan wasn't real happy about this. This is one of our first gigs at the entry, we actually played uh, what was called Tiger Night over at the Longhorn where there was free beer. We played earlier in the night, like, say, 8 o'clock or whatever, and we got done, loaded up all our gear, drove over to the entry to headline over there. And McClellan was like, well, nobody's going to come see you now. You just played for free beer over there. And he was rather surprised when we actually brought in I mean, we didn't sell out the room or anything like that, but it was, I think, a larger crowd than he expected because we had the people that followed us. So McClellan definitely saw something in the band right away. So he starts putting us on on the calendar a lot, starts getting us some cameos in the main room. And the Longhorn now at this point has changed hands. It's now called Zoogies. It's things are different. And, and eventually the Longhorn is just gone. That's just the entry. But in that time also, uh, we had a chance to open up for Mission to Burma when they played uh, the entry. 
a couple of Canadian groups come through, DOA and uh, the Subhumans, both from Vancouver. And uh, those guys, you know, we opened up for, for them as well. And, and they're like, hey, if you guys ever want to come west, you've got contacts. We'll do whatever we can to help you get gigs. And more gigs were exactly what Husker Du wanted. Bob Mole began to pick up business tips from McClellan. As Bob told me, the band's ambition was beginning to move beyond the Twin Cities. I felt like I was watching like a really big operation, and all I wanted to do was learn everything I could. So I was always asking Steve, how do we do this? How do we do that? You know, you would teach me about settlements. He'd teach me mm-hmm. about Deadwood. He'd mm-hmm. you know, teach you all the stuff that you have to learn. And, you know, I was just taking it in as much as I could all the time, just a a sponge for all of it. So, yeah, Steve was very, very giving with his time. I'm sure I I drove him nuts. Greg was doing some booking for a while, and there was a point maybe two or maybe three years into the band where I just said, hey, let me do this. I think, you know, maybe my disposition, Mm -hmm. I'm a little gruffer. (laughs) Maybe I can get more money for us. I can can do the shakedown. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Exactly, yeah. I know how to beat people up. McClellan's teaching me how to do it. So (laughs) let me (laughs) me do this. (laughs) We put a lot of work into it, you know, doing flyers, getting Mm -hmm. out, making people aware of the band, you know, trying to generate press, sweet potatoes, uh, reader, I mean, uh, Dave Ayers was over at the Daily. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were just trying to, you know, scare up any kind of mention anywhere that we could get to try to build up a portfolio. You know, when, when people kept their press clippings, you know, in, mm-hmm. in analog form and pasted them all mm-hmm. together and Xeroxed them and then started sending them to clubs in Madison and Milwaukee and whatever. I mean, we were very aware of what we needed to do to you know, start becoming a new band in the upper Midwest that could, you know, hopefully get to Chicago someday. So it was, there was a lot of work put into it, but I mean, you know, once we got to the gig and, you know, would set up for sound check and see our friends and start drinking and, and getting stoned and get ready to play. And I know mean, it was amazing fun and meeting people and meeting other musicians and, you know, sort of coming in at the tail end of that first wave of, of Minneapolis punk. By late 1980, Husker du was ready to record. Twin Tone Records, founded in Minneapolis in 1977, looked like an obvious fit. Here's Bob again. I knew about Twin Tone, obviously, and, you know, we did demos and gave them to Twin Tone in hopes mm-hmm. of getting signed. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the funniest stories is each of the three principals at the time, you know, Paul Stark and Peter Jesperson and Charlie Hallman, mm-hmm. They all liked a different song of the three songs, so they could not agree. Therefore, we did not end up on Twin Tone. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Here's Greg Norton. There was no consensus, so they're like, ah, we're going to pass. So that's when we decided to put statues out ourselves. I think Bob said that Amusement was written in response to them being, you know, not being interested in us. And then, uh, you know, the Reflex was our label, so that was our Reflex to being rejected. So we put that out on our own. That comes out in the beginning of 81. Twin 
Deftones' rejection helped fuel the band's friendly rivalry with another group from Minneapolis, as Greg told us. This is something that I said when, when the uh, Replacements documentary got filmed is, you know, we always wanted them to be the second best band in town, and they felt the same way about us. But, you know, actually, you know, when, when we started off, it's like, okay, hey, Peter Jesperson kind of likes us, and oh, but there's these new kids in town. He likes them better, you know, and then, you know, they get signed to Twin Tone and we don't. We have to do our own thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a friendly rivalry, but a good one. You know, I mean, we, we brought the replacements to New York and they played their first New York gig opening up for us. You know, so we did, we did a lot of stuff together. Um, it was uh, one of those things we kind of looked at. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the Rolling Stones Beatles uh, rivalry. You know, they were the Stones and we were the Beatles. This has been part two of Do You Remember, a podcast about who's Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In our next episode, Bob, Grant, and Greg record their first two albums and begin touring the U.S., making connections with the national punk rock underground. You have you know, Greg, the bass player, kind of holding it down. And then you have Bob Mould, who is brilliant, but this, he just kind of kept everything in check. And then there's Grant, you know, on, on drums and vocals, who was also brilliant, but was just kind of this tornado, you know, yelling and screaming and bashing away. And it was a dynamic I don't think I've consciously ever witnessed before, where you could see it. Like, one guy's trying to keep it together, one guy's trying to, to rip it apart, you know, in this kind of, like, almost uh, celebratory, shamanistic, you know, Kind of way. If you didn't recognize that voice, that was Henry Rollins. Hear from him and more next time. Do You Remember was written by Michelangelo Matos, edited by Anna Reed, produced by David Safar, and directed by Brett Baldwin. Brian Oak, Andrea Swenson, and Luke Taylor contributed interviews to this episode. Additional thanks to Corey Shreppel. Special thanks to Rick Carlson and our guests, Terry Katzman, Chris Osgood, Lori Barbero, Annie hengsler Reinick, Steve McClellan, and the members of Husker Du. You can find most of the music from this episode on Savage Young Du from the Numero Group. This podcast is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Mary Lucia. This is Do You Remember from the Current. Remember when you are eight? Do you remember?